Addiction is a symptom of a life that's not mm. working. Anybody can get over this. If you haven't, then you haven't yet. It just mm. means you've not applied the right tools yet. This is Awakened Love, the podcast, and I'm your host, Angel. This is a space where we get real, real about sex, love, and awakening. So strap in, let's go deep. What's up, beautiful awakened beings? Welcome to another episode of Awakened Love. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Paula Hall. Paula is an accredited psychotherapist who specializes in helping people affected by sex and porn addiction. She started her career as a therapist 30 years ago when she joined a local drug addiction agency as a volunteer and two years later began her formal training and went on to qualify as a relationship counselor and psychosexual therapist. She began specializing in sex addiction in 2007 and has gone on to write three books on the topic, including Sex Addiction, A Guide for Couples, and she is the founder of the Laurel Center, who provides therapy for both people with addiction and their partners and also has a community interest company, Pivotal Recovery. I am extremely grateful to have her here today and to dive into this interesting and important topic of sex and porn addiction. Welcome to the show, Paula. So grateful to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I'd love to just dive right in and have you explain what is sex and porn addiction? And how uh, common would you say it is? So they've been trying to do the research on um, how, you know, how many people have this for so many years. And to be honest, the statistics vary hugely. Uh, the most reliable research that we've had so far was saying that it was about 7% of men and about 3% of women. Um, there's a huge international sex survey that's going to be coming out over the next six to 12 months. And they've got quite a lot of prevalence figures in different countries around the world. Um, so it'd be really, really interesting to see that. Um, but I guess in terms of what is it, it's any type of sexual behavior. So, you know, watching porn is, is a form of sex addiction, any kind of sexual behavior. So that could be, you know, whether it's online, offline, whether it's webcam, video, chat, it could be meeting up with people, it could be massage parlours, it, it could be saunas, you know, it really, really doesn't matter what the type of behaviour is. In the same way as if we were talking about alcohol addiction, it wouldn't matter what flavour alcohol it is. It's what defines it as a problem is when you're dependent on how it makes you feel and you can't stop in spite of significant harmful consequences. So it's really about the impact that it has on your life that just defines it as a problem. Hmm. I know that like, I mean, speaking with the kind of alcoholic um, reference, sometimes you get people who are like very high functioning alcoholics, let's say. So yeah. they might argue um, that the impact is is minimal because they're holding a job or, you know, whatever. But still you'd say, no, like that's alcoholism. Is that sort of applied to sex addiction as well? Do you have people who are, let's say, highly functioning? So the impact doesn't seem as great, but it would still be considered addiction. And, and where is that line? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's still addiction. <laughs> it's still an addiction. It's still a compulsion, but it's not a problem. 
So, uh, I mean, we've all heard the stories of, oh, my grandma smoked 40 cigarettes a day and she didn't die till she was 100. We've all heard those stories. But we, you know, nonetheless, we know certainly with obviously the chemical addiction, so things like smoking and alcohol, um, you may be holding down a job, you may be doing well, but your liver is one heck of a mess, mate. Um, And it kind of isn't a problem until it is a problem and you have a heart attack. Um, So you're kind of playing Russian roulette with those things, even though you're managing to function. And I think in many ways, the the same is true with sex and porn addiction. If you're somebody who's single, who's having loads and loads of sex, loads of multiple partners, you're really enjoying it, that there's no impact on your life. Great. That's fine. Maybe you are an addict, but who cares if you're a happy addict and it's not costing anybody any, you know, any problems in terms of health and that kind of stuff, then then it doesn't matter. Um, I guess the point where it sometimes does matter, though, where I see it is where, for example, a guy is thoroughly enjoying all of that, but then he does get into a relationship and actually he falls in love. And actually, this is somebody that he does want to be faithful to. And actually finds it really difficult to do so or finds it really difficult, for example, to get an erection because he's got so used to kind of the the variety and the novelty that he's had in acting out that actually it becomes really difficult. So sometimes you have to think Mm. maybe this isn't a problem right now, but if I carry on, if I carry on like this, will it be a problem in a year, in five years, in 10 years? And do I... Do I want to wait till then before I change? Mm. Yeah, there are a few threads I want to pull on. So you talked a little bit about the impact on relationships there. Can you can you dig in a little more about how, because also I get a lot of questions from my community, particularly most of my listeners are um, women or femme identifying folks. And a lot of the time the question is, um, is it okay for my partner to to watch porn? Like how much porn is too much porn? Is it okay at all? So I'd love to go there first and then maybe dig into what are some yeah. of the greater impacts on relationships from sex addiction, porn addiction. I, I guess one one of the problems with uh, sex and porn addiction, of course, is that it, it touches our values in a way that often some of the other behaviours don't. Um, I mean, if you you know if your if your partner drinks alcohol and you're teetotal and it's against your religion, then then you may have some issues with that. But we don't generally have the same kind of value judgments that we do around things, you know, sex and porn. So yeah, if your partner watches porn, is is it okay with you? I don't know. Is is porn okay with you in terms of your values? And I think if it isn't, then that's a conversation you need to have. And in my, I've been a couple therapist for thirty years now, and one of the things that's really, really hard for couples to negotiate is when their when their values are different. We can compromise on most things, but we shouldn't have to compromise on our values. So actually, if this is something that is really abhorrent to you, if you're really against it then it's it's probably not going to be okay for you. Might be okay for him, but I mean, mm. it might be that either he's going to sacrifice this for you because the relationship's more important or you're going to have to agree to differ or it, it could be the end of the road. So then it really becomes about how much is too much mm. and in, in terms of the impact on a relationship, I guess partners, and I do a you know a lot of work with partners. Partners often get quite quite upset if porn is being chosen over them. 
Yeah, so I think for for partners, if if you're choosing, if your partner is choosing porn over you on a regular basis, if basically they'd rather have sex with a computer screen than with you, then that that might start being a problem for you. You may not like that. I guess it might happen occasionally if your partner's got a much higher sex drive than you have, then maybe that's something that you're okay with. But I think if it happens on a regular basis and actually you're missing out, the relationship's missing out, then I think that will be an issue. And I think for many partners as well, it's not... It's often not the behaviour that is a problem as much as this. So if your partner is viewing porn Mm. when they said, actually, I'm going to stay up late and watch a movie or I need to catch up on some work or they're getting in trouble at work because they're watching porn during the day. If it's if it's really affecting them and you can see that this is a compulsion, then, yeah, it, it is going to be an issue unfortunately we probably at the the laurel center the majority of people that we see are people where their partners have just found out and often it's then become more than just porn it started with porn but then it became the chat rooms and then it became the webcams then it became sex work and often it's that escalation which really causes the problems Mm. You spoke about this like sort of chemical component to tobacco and alcohol addiction. Is there a chemical component to sex and pornography addiction as well? Well, one of the things that we know is the um, the chemical... Yeah, yeah. The chemical dopamine is actually the common denominator in in all addictions. And you can stimulate dopamine directly by consuming something like alcohol or eating sugar, in fact. Um, and that will trigger the chemical directly. But you can also trigger it through through your behaviours as well. Dopamine is a really important chemical. If we don't have enough dopamine... This is a bit neuroscience for dummies, by the way, in case there's any neurosciences listening, thinking that's not quite right. I know I'm just trying to be simplistic here. But, um, you know, we get a dopamine hit when we see a beautiful sunrise in the morning. Yeah, we need dopamine. We need to have those aha moments, those lovely times. The thing is, you can't get addicted to sunrises because they only happen once every 24 hours. It's going to be impossible for it to to escalate. Um, but the thing is, we when we start using our behaviours on a regular basis because we keep wanting to stimulate it, what happens after a while is that it's not enough. So we need to do it again. So a sunset doesn't do it anymore. We've got to have sunsets and we've got to have sunrises and we've got to have that and we've got to have that. And that is where you start seeing the escalation. So yes, there there is a neurochemical um, commonality across all addictions. Mm. And is there a way to delineate between someone who has, let's say, a high sex drive or is just a really sexual, let's say, person in a, in a healthy way versus someone who is an addict? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The <laughs> This is probably the biggest misunderstanding of sex and porn addiction. It's got nothing to do with sex. It's got nothing to do with sex drive. It's got nothing to do with desire, nothing to do with appetite. Um, we've been talking about alcohol, but if you think of something like um, chronic overeating, so obesity is obviously when you're eating far more than you need to when you've become addicted to food. In many ways, sex and porn addiction is mm. is, is kind of more, more like that than the chemical addictions. Um, as someone who's chronically obese isn't chronically obese because they're hungrier than other people. They haven't got a bigger appetite. Right. They might think they feel hungry more often, but 
you can just look at them and go, wait, you are not hungry. You are not starving. This is clearly not the case. It doesn't come from appetite. So someone who's chronically obese is eating for comfort, not for appetite. And the same happens with sex and porn addiction. When it's reached the point where it is definitely addiction, where it's getting really out of control, it is not coming from appetite. It's coming from a desire for that dopamine hit. So it's not to do with testosterone, it's to do with dopamine. Okay. <laughs> um, I was just saying it's a really wonderful analogy because um, I can really clearly see in my mind that addiction to food that's creating um, ill health and and compromising someone's health versus someone who's really passionate about food but has a healthy like relationship um, and I guess listening to the signals in, in their system. Um, I'm curious, is, is porn ever okay? Like, would you say there's any amount of porn that can be healthy um, or is it something to be steered clear of? What's, what's your perspective on that? No, I, I think that there's undoubtedly a lot of people out there who use porn recreationally and it doesn't, doesn't have a problem for them at all um like i say it's hard to get away from some of the moral issues around pornography and you know for some people pornography is 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 just wrong and um i think it's is very very difficult to know whether or not the pornography that you're viewing has been ethically created um and some of it of course is you know it's, it's women who's been trafficked there's violent porn out there there's obviously the the child abuse images out there as well so there's a lot of really really bad stuff but there's also some you know really nice kind of creative stuff is it porn or is it art it's really hard to tell um so i think it depends <laughs> how you define porn and I think it's exactly as you just said a few moments ago about someone who's chronically obese. It's all about your relationship to food. I think it's your relationship with porn and your relationship with your sexuality that really is 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 the issue here. And I think if you do have a healthy relationship with porn and it is something that enhances your sex life, it's something that leaves you feeling positive, feeling good about yourself, um, and it's not having an impact on any other area of your life, then, you know, go ahead, enjoy. Yeah. How do you know if you're struggling with sex or porn addiction? Is there some telltale signs to look for? I think the, the, yeah, the telltale signs really are, I mean, first and foremost, it is actually about escalation. It's noticing that you need more and more of the same thing in order to have the same impact. That's the first sign. Uh, and again, th- you know, mm. th- th- those of us that drink alcohol, and I'd include myself in, in that category, you know when it's becoming a problem when you've had two glasses of wine that hasn't even touched the sides yet. You, you don't even feel tipsy. Yeah, you know that that's an issue. You can you can experience that. Same with food. You've just eaten a whole bar of chocolate and you could eat a second one. It's just, you know, it's just not an issue. So I think if you're noticing that you need more and more, then that's the time to really start cutting back and kind of, you know, keep keeping an eye on thing on yeah, on your usage. Um but I think the other bit is about those harmful consequences. What impact is this having on me, on my relationships? Am I lying more? Am I being more deceptive? And I think there's a, there's a big difference as well between secrecy and privacy. I don't think, we, we, you know, a lot of people are going to be understandably and rightly so private 
about their sex life and particularly their their masturbatory sex life is going to be something that that is quite private to them but privacy is kind of about protecting your boundaries secrecy is is quite different secrecy is about really wanting to hide would you be embarrassed if everybody knew about this if other people knew or would you just be you know slightly embarrassed or would you actually be ashamed about this so I think it, it is it is how you feel about your behavior but if you're experiencing escalation it's almost certainly going into the land of addiction Mm. Yeah, it seems tricky and sticky because there's so much shame in our culture around sex, which makes it hard, I think, for people to express their needs and desires, let's say to a partner even. And then when we feel like we can't express our needs and desires, maybe the desire to hide. And I wonder, it's like, where's that line between the ingested cultural shame and the healthy, like this is actually wrong kind of shame that can come on. I mean, people listening might think shame to be healthy, but I think there is a social function to shame for certain things that are extreme where you're like, yeah, the reason we feel shame is because that is harmful to us and our families and our communities versus the cultural shame of this thing is not actually harmful. Um, is there how do we kind of navigate that line so i would say there's there's a distinction between shame and guilt and guilt is when you know you've mm. done something bad shame is when you believe you are bad mm. yeah so some people talk about you know mm. hate the sin but not the sinner and use that kind of thing um and shame is when you believe that you are a bad person, there's something wrong with you, you're broken, you're weird in some way. It becomes about your your actual identity. And I think pretty much on the whole that that's pretty toxic and, and generally just not the case. But I think guilt is a very positive emotion. Guilt is when we go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I feel bad about that. And guilt can actually help us change our mm. behaviours. Guilt can be a motivator for change, whereas shame tends to make us hide it makes it much harder to reach out mm. so I, I mean I, th- I think you're right that there is a quite a visceral thing about shame dogs experience shame small children experience shame um, but we try and encourage children that no you you know you're, you're not a naughty person you just did a naughty thing and I think it's it's that same kind of stuff that mm. we have to apply to ourselves as well when we talk about this yeah yeah, I mean, speaking of kids, I feel like these days so much of sexual exploration for teenagers happens online versus, yeah. you know, back in my day <laughs> where you, you know, you had more in real life encounters and fumbles and, you know, you're figuring it out. But is where's the line sort of for allowing healthy exploration that perhaps in some in some senses could be safer if done well versus in and in many senses is is less safe so how do we create or have conversations with our teenagers to say okay i understand that it's going to be natural and healthy for you to explore and perhaps some of that exploration is going to happen online versus 
you know, the unhealthy side that it could get into if we don't have that conversation at all. Is there any way to kind of support a healthy sexual expression online? Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly, particularly for minority groups, it is so important to to be able to access this kind of material online um, because it's it can really help to, you know, get away from feelings of oppression and stigmatization. So, yeah, it's really important. Um, But I think what you you, you kind of had the answer there yourself, you know, when we talk, how do we talk to young people? That is what it's all about. Talking conversations. and it it is it's harder in this area if you if you want to teach your kids about alcohol use one of the ways you do that is actually you probably start letting them drink in the house they probably you know you don't drink too much yourself but of course when we're talking about this topic this is not something where you really can teach your kids by by example um or not quite so overtly, but I think the more confident you can be about your own sexuality, the more confident you can be just just talking about this as a topic. And we have to make sure that when we're talking to young people um, about sex and sexuality, we include the online world as well, because the online world is part of their world and part of their everyday life now. And I think we we often see that as being some kind of exception to the rule rather than it actually being the norm. So it's all about education, 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 and having those conversations. How how will you know if it's a problem? What what sort of porn is okay? What sort of porn isn't okay? How do you know that the people that you're talking to are are the age they say they are? How do you know that you're safe? In in these environments and these are all conversations that we would have had about the the offline world that we now need to learn to have about the online world help your children to keep themselves safe and make good decisions for themselves mm. yeah I also I think the fear that I would have as a parent I'm not a parent yet but is the sort of ramifications or of let's say do they know if they're being um filmed or if it's being recorded or if they're you know and then is that going to be distributed and how does that impact them and you know um yeah that would be a big concern is there anything you would say for that for for because how do you kind of have these interactions that are online ever knowing if that's going to be um recorded without your consent well i mean that that's really know yeah i mean that unfortunately is that that that's the harsh reality is that you can't actually know that at the moment we don't have we don't have the technology to know that so i think the the way you keep yourself safe online is you keep your clothes on because you can't be sure that <laughs> what you're yeah, what you might mm. be doing. I mean, it's, it's it's a scary fact that the the vast majority of underage images that are now online are actually self created content. Um, and it, it that gets into the wrong hands, that goes to the wrong places. But it's it's yeah, the whole world's changed very a lot. Mm. Yeah, I think having those conversations, as you say, and and hopefully modeling a healthy relationship to sex is is all we can do. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. If you feel that your partner does perhaps have a problem or let's say it's not yet a problem but you're noticing an escalation how do you how do you approach them about that because that might be a really difficult conversation but an important one 
Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, there will be a lot of partners out there who instantly go into defense and denial. Um, I think it has to start off with, you know, I am concerned about your use or I've seen changes in your behavior. Do they seem to be being more secretive, more withdrawn, more stressed, more anxious, spending more time away? What, you know, what's what's going on that's kind of worrying you about this? Um, and I think... Uh, a lot of partners, because we, we we provide a lot of support programs for partners at the Laurel Centre, and a lot of partners will say they had a hunch, they just had a sense that something wasn't okay. And I think if if that rings true for you, then then really dig down into that and think actually what is what is actually going on? Because often hunches. Um, we get them because we're actually noticing stuff, but we haven't actually applied any language to it yet. So, that you know, it's just a hunch that something's going on. But if I think about it, yeah, you actually, you haven't been to bed before 11 all this week and you always used to, or that, you know, there've just been these changes. Um, so really sort of dig down into what those hunches are and what's going on, what behavior change that you've witnessed. And then, yes, yeah, I'm concerned. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm noticing. And this is what I'm feeling. I think don't don't just try and make it an argument over the facts. We you know make it about you as well. That actually, I I'm I'm uncomfortable that something's going on, and I I think we really you know need to explore this properly. But it's it's yeah it's it's tough. It is mm. a very tough one. Yeah, and as I and said, a lot of partners will just go straight that... away into defensiveness. If that happens and someone's approaching a partner and, and trying to start a conversation and the partner goes straight into defensiveness, what would be your advice? I mean, I think that could apply to a lot of things outside of just sex and porn addiction. But Yeah. Um, I I think that there's... Yeah, how would you say? A couple, couple of things to do. The first thing would be don't am- ambush. Don't ambush your partner. Um, so often I hear this, you know, I, I thought we were just going for a nice walk or I thought we were just going for a drive to, to so-and-so's and suddenly the questions start. Don't ambush your partner. If you want to have a serious conversation about something, say when you get home tonight or tomorrow or on Friday, whatever it is, I'd really like us to sit down and have a conversation about what, what X, Y and Z, whatever's the topic that's on your mind. So they're not ambushed by it so that's the first thing to say um i think the next thing is to start the conversation by saying i can understand if you feel a bit defensive about this i can get that and i really hope that we can have a conversation where that doesn't happen if your partner does get defensive then i think saying saying it actually naming it I noticed that you got really defensive about that. How can I word that question so that you don't feel that you have to be so different? Make the problem theirs. Twist it round. Tell me how I can have this conversation with you so that you don't feel like I'm having a go at you, like you're being attacked and you have to defend. So get them to give you the answer. And I think beyond that, don't give up. If it's all going, if the conversation is completely mm. falling apart and turning into an argument, then, okay, it seems like you know, now's not a good time. It seems like we're not able to have this conversation now. Um, let's try and have a conversation about this again tomorrow. Don't let your partner think that if they just go, then that means they they get out of it. Go, okay, you're obviously uncomfortable with this. 
let's have a come when when's a good time for you when's a good time for you to talk because we need to do this mm. Mm. yeah i think that's a really important point actually because i feel that a lot of partners use anger rage um acting out as a way to avoid having hard conversations and then the other partner just thinks oh too hard I'm going to put this in the too hard basket, but I, I really think that's an important piece of advice you share there to, yes, say, okay, I see that you're distressed or uncomfortable defensive. Let's come back to this and and not not to actually give yeah. up if it's something important. I want to circle back. You mentioned um, values earlier and, and I, I had this question. It's just come back to me, but you were talking about how, you know, it's really important to decide whether something is sort of against your values or not. And I'm wondering how do people delineate between something that just makes them, let's say, uncomfortable but could be a growth edge that if they were to work through it, they would actually find maybe more connection and and on the other side versus let's say, yeah, like this is actually a breach of my values. Like how do you differentiate between discomfort that's a growth edge versus discomfort that's a boundary against a value? Hmm, interesting question. Um, I, I guess I guess one, I mean, uncomfortable is much more of an emotional thing. And I think our values actually are much more than that. Um, our values, you know, the principles by which we live are, are much more than emotional. So um, if I believe that um, honesty is really important, it won't matter how I feel. Even if I'm if I'm really angry, I'll be honest. If I'm really sad, I'll be honest. If I'm frightened, I'll be honest. Maybe within reason. Depends on that one. But um, you know, so your 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 values don't mm-hmm. change with your emotions. So that there's no situation where that mm. that that wouldn't change if something's against your values. Whereas I think if it's as you say, something about discomfort. I think discomfort's more of an emotional thing. I don't know if you've got an example that would come to mind when that question came up. Yeah. Yeah, I think about, I work with couples who um, are consensually non-monogamous, for instance. I work with monogamous couples, but I also work with couples that are in less conventional relational styles. And sometimes, you know, people are setting a boundary from a genuine place to create structure and safety. And other times they're setting a boundary from a place to prevent themselves feeling an uncomfortable emotion that's actually theirs to deal with. Um, And so it it can be tricky. We get into this space of control and, and right and wrongness. You know, I think that's where it's hard, for example, um, you know, some people just don't want to be in a an open or poly relationship and that just isn't their desire or value set and that's really true for them. Um, but other times someone is saying, yes, I want this, but then um, not not actually <laughs> kind of playing ball and, and kind of let's say the discomfort comes up and the control comes up. So it's I think it can be tricky sometimes for people to know, like, is this actually something that I want and I'm okay with? And so, for example, let's say with pornography, um, someone might think, oh, it's just against my values. Whereas, let's say their partner is watching ethical porn. But they'd have to to name the values. Yeah. 
I think they'd have to right. name those yeah, the, values that it's say against. More about you can't that. just say this is against my values. You've got to say, well, which values? Um, so, so, I mean, you're talking about sort of poly yes. relationships, open non-monogamy. I, I mean, I, I think those those couples, uh, people, groups, whatever, still on the whole have the value of um, f- fidelity and faithfulness. They just have a different definition of yes. it. I don't yes. think there are many people yes. who would say that actually, um, yeah, fidelity is important to me, but I want you to be faithful on these things in these issues so and trustworthiness and all this kind of stuff. So that value is the same throughout. Yes. So it's it's it wouldn't be yes. against that value. So I think if someone says porn is against my values, which which values is it against? Mm. And I think I think it makes it very mm. difficult to be that we were talking about earlier about all the different types and genres of porn. I think it's hard to say that all porn is against your values because some of it is is I'm, I'm against the exploitation of women, and that sometimes happens in porn. And that yes. kind of porn I'm against is against yes. my values, but it's against my values about the, the importance of respect and dignity for for human beings. Yeah. Yes. So that is the value that that yes. type of porn would be against. So I think you have to be, you know, you have mm. to drill down much more. You can't just say porn's against my values. Which ones? And I think yes. if, if someone's okay, definition so of fidelity helpful. is... Yeah, if if your definition of fidelity is that you will only have sex with me, you won't be turned on by looking at images of other people on screen, then the value that's being broken is fidelity, but it's your definition of it. It's not everybody's definition of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so key. That's super, super helpful. That specificity, because I think you really touched on something that I see, which is when people dig their heels in and say that is just wrong. Like non-monogamy is just wrong or pornography is just wrong. And then that creates shame or dissonance with their partner versus help me understand why this is important to you. And let me tell you what this is bringing up for me. I really think that's so key. What you just highlighted there, this, the specific value that it works against. Yeah. So if someone does is listening and they think, you know what, I might have a problem um, with sex or pornography, what what would you suggest they do? What what would be the first move? I th- I think the, the the first thing is 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 asking yourself why. What is the impact that is ha- this is having on my life? In what areas is this getting in the way? Is it affecting my relationships? Is it affecting my sexuality? Is it affecting sorry is it affecting how I feel about myself um is it affecting other areas of my mental health because actually I'm spending so much time on this when I really ought to be going out for a run or you know doing something better with my time um so I think really ask yourself what the impact is I think for for anybody the first thing is to just is to try and stop and control it on your own not everybody needs a, a therapist as much as therapists might like to think we're um needed for everything but we're really not um distraction having other things i think one of the the, the i would say the, the two things that are the most important really for recovering from any kind of behavioral change any kind of behavioral problem is planning and self-care so planning right what's the week ahead 
when am I most likely to be susceptible to engaging in these behaviors that I want to reduce? Right. What am I going to do differently? So plan ahead, right? I'm going to go and see that friend. I'm going to watch that movie. I'm going to, you know, go for a walk, whatever it might be. And self care, finding other ways to look after you. Um, you know, ultimately we are, we are a species that enjoys pleasure, particularly we enjoy sensual pleasure, whether it's food, alcohol, sex, it's, it's the sensual pleasures. Actually, how else can I get that kind of self-care and self-nurturing for myself? Um, there's a, a saying in, in addiction recovery, they say that recovery isn't about what you give up, it's about what you take up. And actually looking at other ways that you can be soothing yourself, enjoying yourself, giving yourself pleasure, I think is really important. Um, if, if that's not working for you, if you've tried that and it's not working, or if it's a partner who's tried that and, and actually they keep slipping, they keep going back, it keeps coming back, um, then then do try first stop Pivotal Recovery. Pivotal Recovery is a, a, a new um, initiative that I launched um, end of last year, and it's a, a not-for-profit, affordable really affordable self-help podcast based program so people can give that a try and and see whether they can do it with just through sort of self-help and if not then that's when you have to bring in the cavalry and get the therapists involved but there's a lot of people out there who as I say with good planning self-care get into the daily regime and listening to pivotal recovery podcast and maybe you can get it sorted on your own Mm, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing those resources. And would you say, and I, I imagine I know the answer to this, but I think it's important for people to hear, is healing possible? Oh, and gosh, how? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've worked with people who've had this problem for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and they really think that there's no chance. We've worked with people who've never had an offline relationship. They've never had flesh on flesh sex because everything's been with a computer screen. And so often it is, it's our shame that tells us it's too late for me. I can't get better. I can't, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm more weird and more broken than anybody else on the planet. That's what shame tells us. And it's just not, it's just not the truth. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can, it's not an easy journey for everybody. For many people, the roots of this problem are in childhood. For some people, there's a real history of trauma that needs to be looked at and explored as well. Um, you know, ultimately it's, it's not about changing your behavior. It's often about changing your life. Addiction is a symptom of a life that's not Mm. working and it's your life that you need to change. And, and, Sometimes Mm. that, that, you know, that obviously takes, takes a lot of work, but absolutely. And anybody can get over this. If you haven't, then you haven't yet. It just Mm. means you've not applied the right tools yet. Wow. Addiction is a symptom of a life that is not working. That is really, really powerful. Uh, you, you just mentioned, and I'm curious, are there any common root causes of sex and pornography addiction? Like what's underneath very often or is it always totally unique? Um, it generally boils down to, and this is the same with all addictions, not just with sex and porn addiction, but um, of it, some kind of childhood trauma. 
um, and that trauma could be, um, you know, something that that's really impacted your your self esteem. So one of the reasons that you're acting out, particularly if it's in person, acting out is about seeking validation. You might be being online. You want to be wanted. You want to be desired, and it's all about boosting your self esteem because it was so damaged in childhood through some kind of abuse, whether that was in the family home or it could have been at school or, or whatever. So those sort of those kinds of traumas um but the other thing is what where there are what we would call attachment wounds so where you've been abandoned perhaps or you've been rejected or you've been betrayed and then there's can be a real fear about relationships about any kind of relationships and when there's that fear about relationships we are more likely to turn to things for comfort rather than people ideally if we need comfort we turn to our friends, we turn to a partner, we turn to relationship. That's where we get our comfort from as human Mm. beings. We're a social species. But if your trust has been seriously broken in the past, you may decide that actually a bottle of whiskey or pornography is more reliable than people have ever been. And remember, people become addicted because Mm. it works. It's an effective way of soothing but it brings such other consequences and impacts. Wow, that brings a lot of compassion in, I think, into this space, which is super important. So I really appreciate um, how you hold this work and you're very frank about things, but I feel there's a lot of compassion there too for the for the pain that is underlying these issues. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Where can people find yeah. you if they want to engage more with your work? Um, the easiest way to get a hold of me is um, to, at the Laurel Centre. So that's the laurelcentre.co.uk or pivotalrecovery.org. So both of those um, websites, you'll you'll find me. You'll you'll be able to get through to me through yeah through either of those. Amazing. And if you could share one thing with people listening that you wish they could know about um, sex and pornography addiction, uh, what would you share that you want people to know, more people to know? One thing I'd share about it, it's not about sex. It's about self-soothing. It's about comfort and um, overcoming it is about learning to love yourself. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for your time today. And you're very yeah, welcome. I really, really appreciate all of your wisdom and the work you do. Yeah. Thank you. That's it for today, Awakened One. And just a quick thank you from me. Thank you for gifting us with your most precious resource, your time and attention, so that we can make this world a more awakened place. And if we're not friends on Instagram yet, then we absolutely should be. So come on over and say hello at Angelica Alana, and I'll see you there and see you next week.